As the world is writing a new story of global kinship, Postmodern Missionary dives into what it means to be a missionary pushing against the heritage of colonialism. Join Reverend Katie Meek as she explores life and faith in Sierra Leone. Hello, friends and neighbors. Welcome to a new format for the Postmodern Missionary Podcast. Let me tell you about it. So many people have requested that I add a teaching component on here in addition to my interviews, which has been actually in the works for a while. I had planned to teach some on how to do missions well. I had teachings on what neocolonialism looks like. And then Corona happened. And my life and your life and every church and the whole world has been disrupted by the Rona. So instead... I decided to take the opportunity to see what certain episodes in history might teach us about how to handle this disruption. For example, we're going to look at the Black Plague. So here we are with a four-part series on disruptions in church history. Now, a few things you need to know. One, each week we are going to look at one disruption in church history. We're going to wade through what this disruption was, and then we'll ask the question of how the church responded to it. And you will find that sometimes the church handled what they were facing in a really positive and constructive and gospel-centered way, and sometimes not so much. Two, this is by no means an exhaustive list. It's only stuff that I've encountered and that I find instructive and interesting. Three, and this is important, I decided to do this topic before we started this newest critical conversation about race for our generation and before the uprisings against police brutality and in the U.S. And I don't know about you, but for me, it feels like now there are two disruptions going on. However, I think this topic has something to say about the conversation about race as well. Four, I am personally doing my own spiritual work toward becoming truly anti-racist, and I have been for a while now. I believe that this work is vital, central to being a postmodern missionary that does not cause harm. But this podcast is not directly about that not directly about that. My plan is to tell you how these disruptions were handled by sections of the church, for good or for ill. Now, I know that there will be parallels that can be drawn between the stories that I tell here and what we're facing today. Now, I am not going to make those connections in this podcast. Instead, I'm going to let you and the Holy Spirit and maybe some friends on your journey, do that work together. My firm belief and conviction is that the church must respond to the disruptions of today. Even if we don't respond, that is still a response. Maybe looking back will help us look forward. And that is my hope. And number five, and this is also very important, I think this is going to be fun. (laughs) I mean, like nerdy fun, but still fun. And I am super glad you're here. So with that introduction, let's get going.
Okay, so um, our very first topic is early on in Christian history, how the church went from being a church of the underdogs and martyrs to the church of the empire, the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now, I know a lot of you probably already know some of the story, how Constantine um, took the took Christianity and made it the official re- uh, religion of the empire. Um, but I am not going to actually get into how that happened and what happened and all of those sorts of things. I'm just going to talk about what the church was before that happened and then how the church navigated this colossal change that has truly affected the church through the rest of the church's history. Um, We are a different church because this happened. And so I want to talk first about what the church was before this, because it was very different than the church that you know of today. So first we're going to talk before Constantine, and then we're going to talk very briefly about what happened um, to make the church the official religion of the empire and then we're going to talk about how the church handled it there were actually two important ways that the church handled it so let's get started so the church before constantine really was i believe truly a church of the underdog um but it was also known um as we look back for uh, like requiring a rigorous uh, commitment and devotion to Christ. If you were going to be a Christian, it, it was everything for you. It was your whole life. So let's talk about how that happened and what that was about. Um, all right. So the Greco-Roman Empire was a very actually religious empire and um, and had many, many different religions. And as they conquered new lands, they just essentially adapted and adopted the new re- the religion from that land into what was essentially a pantheon of gods and, and uh, religious expression. And so um, in that way, we call that syncretism. So essentially what happened was the Roman Empire was just across the board, a mix of different elements of different religions. And so people weren't born into a particular religion. Instead, they chose their own kind of personal God to whom that they were going to, they were to whom they were going to be devoted. Right. Um, so there's many gods, there's many religious expressions. Everybody's religious. It's expected that you're going to be religious and that you would believe in these many gods. And essentially it's all the same, which is kind of a big hodgepodge, um, which is an unsophisticated way unsophisticated way of saying that um they also practiced emperor emperor worship so every single person in uh, the roman empire was expected to burn incense before the image of the emperor as a sign of loyalty and worship because they believed the emperors were like gods close to gods maybe sometimes even gods themselves so and in that way they, um, you, it was a, it was a sign of loyalty when you did that. So as what we know about Judaism and Christianity is that they practiced, they were monotheists. They believe in one God above all else. And by this time, one God and only that God, right? Um, and what we, um, we would call them also ethical monotheists. So there's only one God who requires proper worship and proper relationship. And that belief extends beyond just worship, but also into your daily practices and your daily lives. So, um, you know, even before Christ, 
this ethical monotheism, the way that you live your life was a sign of your devotion. And so that meant that you lived your life differently than the rest of the people around you. So there was this kind of set apartedness. And in that atmosphere, so essentially the Jews and the Christians um, are part of the Roman Empire. And in the Roman Empire where there's an atmosphere of syncretism and kind of, um, you know, we embrace all the gods and do all the things and all of that, um, Jews and Christians were really seen as fanatics. Um, You know, they insisted on the sole worship of their one God. And so they're kind of seen as this like... um, Gonzalez calls them an alien cyst that must be removed for the good of society, right? They're a threat to um, the the way that the society goes. Um, They're a threat to the empire because emperor worship united the entire empire under one ruler. Not doing it was seen as a threat to the unity of the empire. Also, if you're not going to partake in our, you know, beautiful synchronistic culture um, that they that they understood themselves to be a part of, then that means you don't really want to be a part of us, right? So Christianity was um, seen as a threat, which started early on um, a time, a season of persecution. The church and the and the Jewish faith as well became an object of persecution. So being an, a Christian in the early years meant being a part of a group of people who were deemed suspect. Uh, they were uncultured and threatening to the social order. And during some of that time, it meant that you could also be martyred for your faith, which to the early church was considered an honor to be chosen by God for martyrdom. So this is what you're signing up into to be like a, an alien sect, right? So when you signed up as well, um, you you had to go through um, a series of education that they called catechism. So because the early church was multi-ethnic, multicultural, there were certain trainings that were necessary for the new converts, um, and that's called catechism. And by the third century BC, no, CE, sorry, in the common era, by the third century in the common era, catechism is three years long. So it's something like if you're a part of a United Methodist tradition or um, a a more high church tradition, it would be something like confirmation, which we do in like sometimes six, 12 weeks or a semester. Sometimes we take a year, but um, for catechism, it was three years long. If you wanted to actually join the church, get baptized, you had to be in classes for three whole years. And this is the way that it worked. Um, There was a division of worship activities. So they divided when you came to worship, everybody came, including the, um, the catechumens is what you call them, including, including the people who wanted to become Christian. And there's first the service of word and then the service of table. So the service of word was basically this extensive Bible reading and teaching for the benefit of the, the baptized and also the catechumens. So they came and there's this Bible learning and, um, there's educational opportunities and all of this. And then, Um, They dismissed the catechumen who were not yet baptized and the service of the table, which would have been what we know as communion, but back then might have been more like a table feast, um, was held for only the baptized. So if you really wanted to be a part of a full part of the Christian faith, you had to um, work for three years to get there and after three years be baptized, right? Um, so so it's um, a church of martyrs. It's a church of um, the catechumen. 
It's also, in my opinion, kind of the church, a church of the underdogs. So we like to think that Paul converted all people in the first generation after Christ. Like we, we go back to Paul and it's like, oh, he started all the churches and you know, all of that. But that's not actually true. The faith, what, let me just say, Paul, his biggest contribution was all of his writings. Um, and he was obviously um, a great leader in the faith, but he wrote everything down. So we know his name. There were actually a lot of people doing similar work. And also the faith actually just spread through normal Christians, people who had already been converted. And, um, now they're, they're living in the Roman empire and a lot of them are merchants and they also brought along their slaves. One of the most remarkable things about early Christianity is that both a high class and low and, you know, even, even to the slave class were, were converted and went to church together and, you know, all of that. Um, And so what happened was the faith got brought city by city on those trade routes by the merchants and also the enslaved um, workers who went along with the merchants as well. And that meant that many of the people who were converted, who were being converted at the time and were the ones who were converting were of the merchant class and even over lower of the enslaved class. So in the early church, there's actually very few, if any, there are some upper class social elites who are being converted at this time. Most of these people were already considered lower class people. It was kind of a church of the underdogs, right? So here's the bottom line about the church before the conversion. Um, During the early centuries of Christianity in Rome, there were no fair weather Christians. <laughs> there, there were no nominal Christians at this time because putting Christian to your name meant that you were literally putting your life at risk. Um, and, and it also meant that you were downgrading yourself socially to a lower and suspected class of people. So essentially, if you're going to be Christian, you had to want it badly enough to be willing to work three years to get in, to in some ways give up your social status and maybe even die for it. So there's no fair weather Christianity at this point. Um, Christianity is a really big commitment and it, and, and you do it because you're with your whole being, you believe um, in uh, that, that Christ is calling you to follow and in the truth of, of Christ Jesus. So um, that is the church that, that, we that we started with um, the foundational church of of Jesus Christ is one that's fully committed. Um, there's no f- fair weather anything at this point. So this is what happens next. Um, up to this point, like I said, the church has been um, persecuted against the in order to be a Christian, the fundamental character of Christianity was one of sacrifice. You sacrificed in many ways your social status, you sacrificed your safety, sometimes you even sacrificed your life, you sacrificed your time, all of this, right? And so um, what happened was uh, Constantine became the emperor and he was 
Christian leaning. And I'm not going to tell you the whole story about what happened. It's kind of involved and how he became a Christian and things like that. Google it. One of my students (laughs) when I was teaching this in class was like, what were the specific military advances that made this happen and occur? And I was like, that's not what this is for. You just move along. That's not what this podcast is for either. So Google it. Um, But Constantine became Christian. He had, or he, he became emperor. He was Christian leaning. And by the end of his life had become Christian. Um, And through him, the persecution stopped really they say through the Edict of Milan, there's a lot that went along there. But what happened because of the end of the persecution and also Constantine's support of the Christian church, um, the church is now able to own property. They were not allowed to own property before. Not only that, the church becomes tax exempt. Clergy become tax exempt. Um, bishops are granted free access to imperial posts, which means that the bishops become a lot more, not just religiously powerful, but politically powerful as well. And, um, because of that, the post of bishop becomes prestigious, very prestigious and powerful, and sometimes leads to corruption and arrogance. Um, the bishop was granted sometimes judicial powers, which meant that they're often offered bribes and sometimes would take them. Um, so that's the leadership of the church. The Christian becoming Christian actually also became much less dramatic and much less sacrificial. So, um, as the numbers of converts increased, there's not really a system of catechism that could handle all of them. It, it became in vogue, you know, Christianity became the new religion that people were curious about, interested in. It became kind of in vogue to um, look into that. And so the more people who came, the less the system could handle them and catechize them. And so many were baptized without first having been catechized, um, without going through catechism, without being trained, and not really know knowing the full meaning of what they were doing. So before there's three years of training, and now all of a sudden the numbers are too big, there are people flooding in. And some of them get like no training and they're just baptized and brought in, which means that they brought some of their old syncretistic ideas with them, which means that they kind of sometimes brought their other gods with them um, as well. So these are, these are new people coming into the church that way. Christian worship becomes somewhat modeled after Roman customs And so they start to build elaborate and beautiful churches. They start to use incest. (laughs) I almost said incest. Not that. Incense in the church. Um, They begin with the processional. Did you know that the processional came? Because it was was actually a Roman practice. Um, There were um, new and elaborate and expensive clerical garments that that the clergy started to wear. Um, And then there were formation of choirs. So some of this is kind of fun and great. But uh, otherwise, um, the church becomes a lot less lay driven. The office of clergy becomes a lot more important. And church buildings become uh, a way for emperors to leave a legacy of their power and wealth right? So on the one hand, there's more, there's more people becoming Christian. The word is spreading. Um, I, I really don't think that you can underestimate the importance of this event in Christian history, um, in terms of would we have even made it? Would the Christian church have made it in the same way? Certainly not in the same way, but would we have even made it with, were it not for the support of 
the society, the institution, the emperor? Um, you know, that's the question that can be debated, but you can't underestimate the, the difference that this event, this moment made in the course of Christian history. Um, so in some ways it was a really good thing, but then in other ways, the integrity of that, of the faith is starting to wane because people who are coming in, um, are not being trained into that integrity. Um, there's, there's outside forces and outside power that's starting to corrupt, um, what was, um, you know, a church of the underdogs that had no power. Um, so all of a sudden there's all this power coming in. Um, and there are really two ways that the church responds to that. Um, and after this little musical break, I'm going to tell you about it. Um, there's one of accommodation and one of, um, I think dissent pushback, something like that. So, um, stick with me. there is this fundamental shift that has happened in the church. They are no longer suffering under persecution. Christians are starting to um, experience a certain amount of peace. And so there were many people who embraced the changes that imperial acceptance brought and believing that this was God's intent and God's release, release from the pain of persecution. So they believed that Constantine was an agent of God to bring about a new era, almost akin to like Moses and the Exodus. So uh, some people embraced it and said, this is God's doing. Um, and Constantine is an agent of God, um, to make things better for us. Right. And so um, an official theology really kind of needed to be formed in order to accommodate the new reality, because before um, the theology really su supported this idea of sacrifice and all of these things. Um, so the theology marks a pretty stark change from the Christianity that came before it. And I'm going to give you three examples of this change and buckle up. I don't know how you're going to feel about it. <laughs> So here we are. Here's the three examples. So at first, the gospel was particularly good news for the poor. Um, it was even questioned as to whether or not the rich could even be saved, right? Um, and you can see some of that in 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 scripture and, and in some of the words of Jesus, um, how that might actually support that idea. Because Christianity, you know, took gave gave the poor a certain sense of dignity, a certain sense of uh, of importance in the kingdom of God. And, uh, there was this kind of equalizing effect. Um, and so that was what it was before. And now, um, with this new theology, riches and wealth are starting to become seen as a sign of divine favor. So if you have riches and are wealthy, that means that you are blessed by God and you have God's favor and God has smiled on you. Right. Um, so, uh, the poor, the, the good news is becoming less good news for the poor. That's number one. Number two, with the building of new and elaborate expensive buildings, a new Christian aristocracy begins to develop. 
So the form and the practice of worship, as well as the structure itself, moved away from the common people. Up to this point, um, people sat around tables in people's homes and ate and uh, worshiped together and learned together because they weren't allowed to own property. But now all of these buildings are, are starting to change the makeup and the um, hierarchy that you see inside the church. And that hierarchy oftentimes is based on wealth as well. And it, again, the common people start to lose their place in the church. That's number two. Number three, a theolo- the theological focus of the coming of God's reign is removed. Now, if you remember, um, you can read Paul and know how important this idea of the second coming of Christ is in Paul's writings. There was an expectation that the kingdom of God would come on earth. The reign of God would come. And what it meant to be Christian was to live into that, fight for that, pray for that, and um, anticipate it, right? But now, um, you see this in Eusebius's writings, who is a church historian, and many Christians start to see the new era of empire as the fulfillment of God's reign. So this is the long-awaited fulfillment that they um, have been praying for and anticipating. So God's reign is now fulfilled through Rome. So God and Rome um, are, you know, Rome is essentially doing what God is calling them to do, and the reign of God is there through Rome. And so Christian hope becomes not so much about bringing the kingdom of God to earth, but rather ensuring a place for oneself in the afterlife. So if the kingdom of God is already here and you can just look at it and see through Rome, you know, the empire is the, the emperor is the bishop of all bishops, right? Um, And there's this kind of marriage between the two, then you don't need to worry about the kingdom of God coming on earth. And so what you want to work, want to think about is what happens when you die then. Um, so it becomes much more focused on getting into the afterlife, what happens in the afterlife, all of those kinds of things. So that's the official theology that starts to form inside the church proper. Now, there are some Christians who did not not see this as great news and did not see this as necessarily a movement of God. And especially the the Christians who had experienced persecution and understood that to be a call um, and an honor to be persecuted on behalf of the faith and the, the sacrificial nature of the gospel, they saw these changes of empire a lot less positively. And these are people who began to remove themselves from the empire. They started to take themselves out of this church and go in search of a life of solitude and devotion. So you hear about the desert mothers and fathers. Um, These are the people who become the monastics um, and essentially start what will be later known as monasteries. So Christianity had up to this point been a really narrow road, like I said before. It's characterized by threat of persecution and social isolation. And then Christianity as an imperial church is now becoming a religion for the wealthy and comfortable. And many seem to convert because it was socially popular or prestigious thing to do, not because of a true and deep conviction that one must follow the ways of Christ, right? And so for, from the perspective of the, those who became monastics, the church has become worldly. Not only that, um, some b- began to believe that security and comfort made for less committed Christians um, and that 
security and comfort are enemies of the faith. So while some start to see this security and comfort as a sign of God's favor and God's almost even reward for having endured for as long as they have, others start to see this as an enemy of the faith um, because it, um, th- that security and comfort strike at our commitment to the faith. And many saw the assured peace and freedom of the imperial um, Christian empire, imperial Christianity as a snare of Satan. <laughs> so how you like that, friends? Your comfort is the snare of Satan. <laughs> um, and so in order to keep the integrity of the faith and remain faithful to Christ, many chose the monastic way of life. And Justo Gonzalez, whose book I um, pulled this from, he says it this way. He describes it this way. The monastic ways of life is, quote, to flee from human society, to leave everything behind, to dominate the body and its passions, which give way to temptation. And even before Constantine, there were some who felt called to live a more rigorous, disciplined and committed life. But after Constantine, there is a significant wave that begins and monasticism essentially becomes like a sister to the established church, but it's, it's a sister that's almost a corrective to that church. Um, and it's something that if you read Christian history, you'll see as a common thread during times of change or turmoil, some will remove themselves and congregate with others who share a more rigorous and sacrificial view of the faith in order to protect it and in order, I think in some ways, just to follow the question of integrity. Like I want a more devoted life. I I want to give it all to Jesus. And so I'm going to remove myself from this relative comfort and security for a more rigorous way. Now that's not to say that monasticism also doesn't need to be reformed over the course of Christian history. Um, if you study Christian history, um, you will find you will find that, <laughs> that there are very few who don't need to be corrected over the course <laughs> and also might find yourself disappointed. So I'll just tell you that much right now. But um, what's beautiful about monasticism is that it has been willing to be reformed over time and new new versions kind of pop up. And it is this very nimble and useful Christian expression that has adapted at times as the times called for it. So when there is a disruption, oftentimes it's the monastics that adapt to it first. And, um, and what they did was they served as a corrective force in the larger church. They welcomed in those who desired a more rigorous devotion and, and they protected the integrity of the faith. And there's always this one common thread throughout history, and that is the commitment to personal poverty and sharing of goods. So um, what you see here are essentially two options. One is one of accommodation, and you see that there are some sacrifices that have to be made in order to accommodate power. And then the other is one of um, separation and protection. And again, there are sacrifices that have to be made there as well. Um, But you'll find here that it's in some ways for uh, the protection of the integrity of the church. Another thing that you may notice is that 
um, man, the ways that monasticism function as a, a corrective and and um, an adaptive kind of sister to the established church are still happening. There's a there is a movement um, over the last twenty or thirty years um, called neo monasticism, in which people move to the um, what they call the ruins of empire in in an effort to live a different sort of life and a different sort of lifestyle than what has been what the church has kind of accommodated. So there you have it. This will probably be the longest of the po- of the four um, podcasts in this series, partly because um, I think it's really important uh, to know some of this foundational information about why the church is the way it is and how in some ways, like um, a lot of the things we do were not original to um, the faith, but were added on later. Um, and partly because I just taught this and I think it's really fascinating. <laughs> so, and as we move forward into other ones, there are things that I have not actually taught. Um, so I'm having to do kind of my own research this summer to, to get that going. But, um, so it, as the weeks come, it'll get probably shorter and shorter. Of course, I always promise that I'm going to preach short and then I end up preaching the same length. And I always promise my students that they're going to get out early and they never do. So no promises really, but that's what I think is going to happen. Um, I also, like I said, I'm going to provide some resources and some uh, cite my sources in um, the show notes and also on my website, postmodernmissionary.com. And I would really love to hear your perspective and your thoughts on this and some of the things that you um, and the Holy Spirit are putting together. (laughs) Um, And uh, yeah, let me know. Push back and ask questions and give me your perspective and all of that. You can do that on my Facebook page. You can do it on my Instagram. You can send me an email. Um, But more fun on Insta and Twitter and all that. So you can find all that information also on my website. So anyway, thanks for joining. I think it's going to be, I hope, um, an enriching experience as we keep going through this. And I think you're going to learn something. But also, I really do hope that um, this is something that can inform your today um, as we move into unprecedented times. So God bless you, friends, and love to each of you.